Fall is my favorite season of the year. All two weeks of it. I love, 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 love fall. And, and I know that I'm not alone when it comes to that. You talk to enough people like, oh, we love, we love fall. Um, you know, there's something about the crispness of the air and the changing of the leaves that make it really hard for a lot of us to look at the creation and go, there, there has to have been a creator. And there's a growing number of people who are willing to go there to say, yeah, there is a God, but they're having a harder time believing in churches these days. And there are a lot of people that are saying, I want to maintain that belief in God, but I want to do it outside of this organization, this, this, this organized religion that just seems so messed up. Um, when I was meeting with Jason and Caitlin and Dan to plan out this series about the church, um, one of the things that I did during the meetings, I just took my computer and I opened it up and, and I, it has a dashboard dictionary. So I thought, let's see what my computer says church is. Let's just have some fun. And, and so I, I typed it in and here is word for word the number one definition that came when I typed in and, and asked my computer to tell me what church is. And it said this, it said it's a building used for public Christian worship. And if you struggle to embrace a religion that is defined this way, where it's about the building or it's about one service that happens once a week. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that as well. And one of the things that drew me to Christianity and continues to draw me to Christianity is that Christianity presents itself as so much more than that. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, here's the second definition that my dashboard dictionary gave me. Number two was this, church. A particular Christian organization, typically one with its own clergy and its own buildings. There's that buildings thing again. And its own distinctive doctrines. And then it gives one example. Out of all the examples it could pick in the world. It gives one example. It gives the Church of England. Anyone know the origin story of the Church of England? That is about the opposite of how Christian organizations are supposed to have and, and come. This is like the opposite of how we're supposed to resolve our differences. Well, if you struggle to embrace a religion where people constantly argue and divide over the kinds of things that should bring us together, you're not alone in that either. Another of the things that attracts me to Christianity is how the Bible strikes this perfect balance of pursuing unity, but pursuing unity within the boundaries that the founder of the movement established. All this to say that my computer does a lot of things well. Does a lot of things well, but representing Jesus' vision for his church is not one of those things. And if we can be honest, which we always try to be here, representing Jesus' vision for his church is something that we often fall short of too. Isn't that true? Yeah. When Jesus returned to his father, he left behind a body. And this body was a sacred assembly of his people. And he called it his church. And as we begin this new fall season, in this growing community, we thought it's going to be important for us to take another look at the actual movement that Jesus founded. And then to ask ourselves some hard questions along the way. So let's dive in. I want to encourage you to take out your green notes insert. And there's a place to write this down. We're going to give you a little Greek today. Jesus built an ecclesia. That's the English transliteration of a Greek word. Jesus built an ecclesia unlike any that the world had ever seen. 
The Greek word that we translate as church in our English Bibles is the word ekklesia. And it's used more than a hundred times in the New Testament. I literally counted to make sure I fact-checked that one. I got 114 in my count. 114 times. Does anyone know out of those 114 times that the word ecclesia shows up in the New Testament, how many times does it refer to a building? Zero. Zero. In the 114 times that the word ecclesia is used, never once does it refer to a building. Now, ecclesia is a word. It was a word that was being used there. It wasn't a new word that they invented. It was a word that meant assembly or gathering. It was a, it was a word that meant that, this, these groups. Ecclesia is a word that Jesus didn't use much. In fact, we only have two recorded uses, usages of the word by him in Matthew 16, 18 and Matthew 18, 17. But what Jesus did there in those two verses was fascinating. Because one of the things that Jesus did a lot of is he talked a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And this church that Jesus cast a vision for was an assembly of people that was to be as different as other assemblies as the kingdom of God is to be from other kingdoms of this world. Now, for the record, this church that he established was never intended to replace him. In fact, I found this quote that sums up really, really well. One scholar writes that the church is Christ's, quote, collective, human and collective visibility. Love that phrase. Is the church is Christ's human and collective visibility. Union with Christ is simultaneously union with his body. So intimate is the bond that we are justified in saying that Christ as head and the church as his body form the whole Christ. This idea that, that those who are followers of Christ, of Christ, these sacred assemblies, the idea was, was so clear in how they lived their lives that they began to call these people followers of the way. They were living in a way that was so unlike the others. They were living in a way that was so closely aligned to the, the way of Jesus that people began to, as they began to realize, these guys are different than others. They began to call them the way. And then, over time, we see in the book of Acts, we see that, that they began to call them Christians. Christians. They made up this new word for them. They were so like Christ in the way that they lived, in the things that they said and did, that people began to call them Christians. You're, you're Christians. This description became so widespread of these people that it was even used by a first century king. We see this in the book of Acts 26, verse 28, where it says this, King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, this is a fascinating verse, at least to me, on a number of levels. One, it's fascinating, again, because it demonstrates how closely the early followers of Jesus aligned their lives with Christ. Others were calling them Christians because of that. They weren't just picking and choosing from what Jesus said and did. They were trying to follow all of it. And another reason this verse is fascinating to me is because Paul was once a zealous Pharisee known as Saul. And as Saul, he had dedicated his life to tracking down followers of the way in an effort to forcefully shut the movement down. And this is fascinating because at this point in his life, Paul is now on the receiving end of the things he used to dish out on others when he was anti-Christian. 
At this point in his life, he becomes so much a part of Jesus' ecclesia that he's now trying to persuade the king to join them in this movement. In the book of Acts, we find that it wasn't just Pharisees like Saul that were leaving their old religion behind. It was priests. It was centurions. It was men and women, young and old, rich and poor. All these people started leaving their old religions behind to follow this new way, the way of Christ, this new community. And as we say about every three weeks around here, there had never been a movement in the history of the world that united such a diverse group of people. Last week, we talked about one of the things that that can destroy this kind of community. And actually, we presented two extremes. One extreme that can destroy this kind of community, no boundaries at all. You know, no boundaries. The other thing that can destroy this kind of communion, community, judge people all the time for any boundary violation. Well, here's what we're going to do this week. Here's what we're going to do this week. This week, we're going to take a look at how ugly church politics can do the same. Today, we're going to press into ugly church politics. There's a place to write this in your notes. Ugly church politics drive healthy people away. They do. How many of you want to be part of an ecclesia where ugly church politics can't get any traction? Anyone else want to be part of that? All right. I hope you all do, because if you've ever seen ugly church politics in action, it's horrible, horrible. Well, before we talk about ugly church politics, let's state the obvious. Ugly politics aren't limited to churches. Isn't that true? They're everywhere. Ugly politics are everywhere. You find them in government. You find them in schools. You find them in hospitals. You find them in businesses. You find them in sports leagues. You find them in families. You find them at school dances. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, right behind the scenes. You find them everywhere, even in nonprofits that are committed to the most lofty of goals. There's all these politics. Oh, but you don't have to step outside the Bible to see ugly politics in action. The Bible is brutally honest at just how badly some church people can behave. And today what we're going to do is we're going to follow just briefly that former Pharisee named Paul, and we're going to see how these ugly church politics seemed to follow him everywhere he went. And it happened right from the beginning. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, we see the record of Paul's conversion to Christianity. And even before that chapter is over, the religious people who he once was a part of, they wanted to kill him. And what they had to do to rescue Paul is they had to put him down through this this opening in the city wall at night just so he could escape. In chapter 13, Paul is driven out of the district of Antioch. In chapter 14, he is about to be stoned in a city called Iconium. But he escaped. And guess what happened in the next town? He got stoned. He wasn't able to escape that time. He was stoned and left for dead in the city that he had fled to to escape stoning. In chapter 16, Paul is beaten with rods and he's thrown in a Philippian jail. There's a pattern that you can see as you read through the book of Acts. And I encourage you to just scan it quickly and you see this pattern over and over again. There's a place to write this in your notes. Ugly church politics follow a predictable pattern. Ugly church politics follow a predictable pattern. Here's what it looked like for Paul. The pattern in his life was this. Paul would share the good news about Jesus of Nazareth. 
people would start putting their faith in this Christ. And those who disagreed went on the attack. Let's look at one example of this inaction. In chapter 17, Paul was released from prison in Philippi. And he traveled about 100 miles to a city called Thessalonica. And we have two letters that Paul later sent to these people after this event. In one of the letters, in the first letter, in chapter 2, verse 2, he references the conflict that we're going to look at right now. This conflict is recorded in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. I want to let you know, too, as we're turning here, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one free today, each and every week. We keep a stack of them right there at that table. We'd encourage you to, to take one. And if you're new, I don't have one up here right now, but we also have a mug there, and those are for you as well. If you're new, please grab one of those on your way home, too. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Now, when they had passed through two really hard-to-pronounce cities that begin with A, they, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading what does it say? Amen. Woohoo. <laughs> woohoo that there were leading women in the, that day. And woohoo that when Christianity, as it actually is, is presented, women were drawn to that. Not just men. Women were drawn to authentic Christianity. All right, picking up with verse 5 and going through verse 10. But... The Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, sounds like a punk rock band or something like that. The wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they sent the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here also. And Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now remember that city, Berea, because we're going to come back to that one as well, because they responded very differently there. But right now, let's just focus on that pattern. The pattern that, again, is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul shares the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. People start putting their faith in Christ. And those who disagree go on the attack. And when they do, those who are the focus of the attack, they feel it. When they do, this community that, that was coming together gets fragmented and hurt. And when they do, the people who are watching this as outsiders, they, they shake their heads in disgust. You know, and, and I think about what so many people see when they look at so many of our churches. And the example we set reflects on the God that we say that we serve, doesn't he? Doesn't it? 
Well, as Paul continues on, this pattern continues throughout the book of Acts, right up till the end. So let's fast forward now to chapter 21. Paul's missionary journeys lead him back to Jerusalem, the city where Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses, the city where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the ecclesia at Pentecost, the city where God worked miracles through his disciples. And as Paul gets closer to a city where you think people would be curious, there's people rising from the dead, there's miracles happening. I would be curious about that. You would think people would be curious about Christianity, but as Paul is getting closer to Jerusalem, He starts getting these warnings through spirit-filled believers. Don't go there. Don't go there. Here's an example. Acts chapter 21, verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The closer Paul got to Jerusalem, the more these warnings intensified. They grew louder and louder. And Paul didn't disregard them. In fact, he confirmed them. But he said, if it means laying down my life, I'm willing to do that. Paul arrived in Jerusalem where he was greeted by Jesus' brother, James. He was one of the leaders of the early church. And James sees Paul and says, Paul, great to see you. Glory to God for your ministry. And also, watch your step. Because Jerusalem is a dangerous place to follow the example and teaching of Jesus. Here's an excerpt from the actual conversation. They glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed. They are all zealous for the law. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? James wasn't just concerned about how the Romans were going to react to Paul or how the Jews who rejected Jesus were going to respond to Paul. James is worried about the Jews who said, we believe in Jesus. He was worried about them. He was worried about them. And isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Not just with with this situation, but, but in situations today. Isn't it sad that often those who are most zealous for the law are often those who miss the point and in doing so misrepresent the God that they're zealous for. And if anyone understands zealousness, it's Paul. Just keep reading in the very next chapter. Paul says, I was more zealous than any of y'all. I get zealousness. Paul remembered all too well how his zealousness led him to become one of the people that James is now warning him about. But then Paul had encountered Christ and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and his eyes were opened to God's amazing grace. And Paul left that old religion behind. James came up with a plan. Came up with a plan. A plan that any reasonable person would look at Paul and say, see, he's not all those things that people claim him to be, right? Claim that he is. So he came up with this plan. They execute the plan and the plan doesn't work. It doesn't work. Paul was confronted by zealous Jews and the pattern began to repeat itself again. And it got bad. It got really bad. Here's what Acts 21, 31 says about how bad it got. As they were seeking to what? Kill him. 
word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. All right, when you do a little historical research, this verse comes alive. And, and one of the ways it came alive to me is when I'd read it before, I always wondered, how did the troops get there so fast? Because if you've got a mob that's trying to kill somebody, that doesn't take long, does it? Right? So in my head, the math doesn't add up. Because if this, if this was a mob trying to kill Paul, how does someone recognize this is happening, go all the way out, find the Roman garrison, they alert the troops, the, the commander of the troops says, we better go, suit up guys. They go across town on foot, fighting through city, and they come there, and they're able to save Paul. I, I, I don't know how that happens, because you'd think he'd already be dead. But he survived this. How is that possible? What I didn't realize until I did my homework on this was that the Romans kept a garrison of troops right there. Right there in the northwest corner of the temple, they had a fortress. And the fortress had a high tower. And that high tower was built so they could scan the temple courts at all times. And they always had someone on alert watching this this, this place where so much violence erupted. Why would the Romans do that? Because these were religious people. And religious people have a long history of behaving badly. The Jews were very, 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 very zealous about keeping non-Jews out of certain sections of the temple area. And there was a barrier that was about four feet high that had warning signs posted at intervals in both Greek and Latin. And the warning signs said this. I'm not making this up. Any foreigner who passes this point will be what? Say it out loud. They will be responsible for what? You cross this point. You're responsible for your own death. We know that this is true, not only because sources outside the Bible testify to this, but we also know it's true because they found one of these inscriptions. Archaeologists found one of these inscriptions. This appears to have been the one offense for which Jewish authorities could execute someone without consulting Rome. They didn't even need to put the person on trial. Think about that. Tensions were so high in the temple area that a tribune was stationed there. And I never looked up that word before because it seemed to me, just reading it quickly, it seemed like, oh, this is probably some kind of person lower on the food chain. They gathered a couple people and they went down, you know, down to, to, to fix things. A tribune was a Roman commander who commanded six centurions. He led a force of 600 to 1,000 Soldiers. Whoa. Well, he comes down these stairs because these that, that fortress had these stairs that directly emptied out, you know, on the on the site. So he comes down and it says with several centurions and soldiers, he leads the team down there. And the arrival of the soldiers saves Paul's life. But as Paul says, Hey, can I try to reason with these people? And Paul starts telling the story that kind of led him there. People are listening all up until the part where he says, yeah, and God has called me to reach out to people besides us. They went ballistic. They went ballistic. And the Bible says they literally, quote, started throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. Get a picture of this. You're this Roman tribune. And Paul says, I want to reach out beyond our own community. And they all start 
throwing their cloaks in the air, throwing dust in the air, and they start saying, he's unfit to live. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And a great topic of conversation in your small church, if you've got time, is to just take a look at the Roman tribune's reaction to all this. He can't believe it. It's like, this is over religion? In fact, he is so much in disbelief that this could really be about religion that he says, Paul, I know who you are. You're that Egyptian who leads that group of 4,000 assassins. That's who you are. And it says in the Bible that he was about to have Paul, quote, examined by flogging. Examined by flogging. Oh, man. But then he finds out that Paul was a Roman citizen. And it was like, oops. Jesus said, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth. It's not a matter of if we will be witnesses. It's what? What kind of witnesses will we be? And there's not much that we can do right here about the witness that our brothers and sisters are doing in Jerusalem or Judea. But you know what we can do? With the help of God, we can try to be witnesses right here in Shoreview and in the suburbs around us and to the ends of the Northeast Metro, right? We can set a different example than this for our kids. We can set a different example for one another. We can set a different example for those that come in and out of the community center, for our neighbors, our family, our friends. What do you say we commit to that right here, right now? Yeah? 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 Okay, yes, all right, great. <laughs> I was a little nervous there for a minute. Start throwing your cloaks off. What? No way. All right, here are four things we can do. Four ways we can contribute to a God-honoring community. Number one, be honest about your agenda. And this is hard, isn't it? Because it takes reflection to be really honest about your agenda. There is a big difference between agenda pushing and truth seeking. Can I get an amen? Amen. And you can spot people right away. Agenda pushers think they already have things figured out. Agenda pushers aren't interested in really listening to what you have to say. Agenda pushers, if they sense you don't agree with them, an agenda pusher will result to mocking and name-calling and attacking your character and shouting over you and even making threats. Those are the kind of things that agenda pushers do rather than really trying to listen. So right here, right now, can we make a commitment that we will seek to understand before trying to be understood. Can we all agree to that? All right, number two. Here's another way. This is a practical thing we can do to contribute to a God-honoring community. Number two, lead with love. Lead with love. Here is a quote from the Bible that I would love for every one of us to know. You don't have to get it word for word, but at least know the gist of this. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul wrote these words. He says, knowledge what? Puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Love does what? Builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Can we all commit right here, right now, to lead with love instead of leading with lectures? Can we do that? All right. Number three, here's another thing that we can do to contribute to God-honoring community. We can pray and examine the scriptures together. I said we'd circle back to the city of Berea. That's what they did there. And look at how differently things went. 
things didn't escalate. They didn't escalate as quickly in Berea. In fact, they didn't even escalate at all until the trolls came over from Thessalonica. How many of you know, with a show of hands, that trolls predate the Internet? All right? They, they do. They do. But they didn't have Twitter back then, so here's how it worked. They actually had to go and follow that person around. And so this happens. See it in Paul. You, you look, look for yourself in Acts. People would hear that they disagreed with Paul and really wanted Paul to, to be killed for these things. They would follow him. When they heard he was in another city, they would actually go there and, and cause all kinds of problems and turn people against him. There was even a group that vowed, I'm not making this up, there was a group, group that even vowed not to eat until Paul was dead. It never says what happened to them. <laughs> I was wondered on that one. But they vowed not even to eat until he was dead. All in the name of religion. One of the things that attracts me to Christianity is it points us to a different way. Let's go back to our text. And, and this is how the Bereans approach this. Chapter 17, starting with verse 10 and through verse 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Can you please repeat after me? I don't have everything figured out. I still have a lot to learn. Can you imagine how different things would be if every one of us would lead with that? So we disagree. Let's start with you. Tell me. Tell me why do you disagree? Now let's go to the scriptures together. If we're brothers and sisters in Christ, let's go to the scriptures together. Let's examine them together. Ours will be a much, much, much healthier community if we go to the word together with humility and a sincere desire to learn rather than pride and a zealous desire to convince. The Bereans were more concerned with seeking truth than they were about winning an argument or defending a position. And predictably, things did not escalate in Berea, the same way that they escalated in other areas. In fact, the only time they started to escalate is when the trolls from another town showed up. And even then, the Bereans didn't just jump into that. They quietly, let's, let's get Paul out of town. All this begs the question, what if? What if we could develop predictable pathways that de-escalated rather than escalated? There's a place to write this in your notes. Here's another thing that we can do to contribute to a God-honoring community. We can develop and follow predictable pathways that are God-honoring. When people are trying to convince other people that they're right and the other person is wrong, the, predict, the, the outcome is predictable, right? If you've got a situation, one person says, I'm right, let me prove to you that I'm right, and they're wrong, it's going to escalate. It is not going to end well. What we're continually working on at ECC is to develop God-honoring practices that will help us de-escalate tension and will help us to weed out. If a person has an agenda that they're trying to push through and they're not willing to listen, we want to have some systems in place to say, okay, you can self-select out because that's not how we operate here. When we examine the scriptures, that is the vision that, that we see the biblical authors casting through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The vision for an assembly where everyone is working together towards solutions. 
Our framework for conflict resolution at Emmanuel, it's Bible-based, and we also draw from some great other resources. And the end of your notes, we write down a couple of them on the back of your notes. The two we start with are Matthew 7 and Matthew 18, because everything we do is based on that framework. We also put up these three books here too, Difficult Conversations, Crucial Conversations, and if you're married, best conflict resolution book I've ever read, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. These are outstanding resources we encourage you to look at. And one of the things I just want to say really quickly here is from time to time, there will be people who will come and and they'll say, you're a church. Why do you quote and why do you recommend things besides the Bible? And I try to not escalate. And, 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 I, and I say, you know, it's, it's, it's the same reason that a Christian doctor would go to med school. It's, it's the same reason that a Christian CPA would learn math. It's the same reason that a Christian lawyer would study law or a Christian in business would get an MBA. Because we want to draw from everything we can to apply these biblical principles in ways that work in our context and in our specific situation. Can we all commit right here, right now, to follow biblical principles for conflict resolution and continually get better and better and better at the conflict resolution process? Can we all agree to that? All right. Then let's sum up what we've been talking about with this. Here is the target. There's a place to write this in your notes. Here is the target for all that we're talking about. Imagine if every Christian pursued unity in Christ. Can you imagine that? Unity in Christ. Here's the wording we use for this on our website. We say the Bible warns against two extremes. Unnecessary arguments and divisions reflecting a failure to maintain unity and unholy compromise and concessions reflecting a failure to abide in Christ. What we want to try to do is avoid either one of those extremes. And here's the problem with that. It puts us in this messy place, doesn't it? Because do we all agree what unity in Christ looks like? No, we don't. We don't. It puts us in this messy place. How many of you know that it is a lot harder and messier to maintain unity in Christ than it sounds? All right? It is. Well, this summer we took, um, we took a number of our leaders to, uh, to a, a leadership training event. And at this event, they put a picture up on the screen. And here's the picture. We got, we got this picture. And, and I saw this picture. You got a fitness center. And it's at the top of a stairway. And there's also escalators. And the people, many of whom are wearing workout gear, are taking the escalator. And I saw this picture and I thought, This is the American church, isn't it? This is the American church. And when it comes to community, there are people, they just want to walk into the building and they want to get their good service. If we're going to become the kind of community that the Bible talks about, it's hard, hard work. There's no escalators that direction. It's going to be messy. It's going to mean a lot of breathing deep. It's going to mean a lot of listening. But if we can do this, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You don't get into shape at a fitness center by not working out. You don't achieve community. You don't achieve community without a lot of hard work. So let me close with this story. True story. There's a a leader in the covenant named Dick Luco, and he's now going to be retiring from his position because he was recently diagnosed with cancer. And so in his last address to us as, as pastors, he shared a, a story from his own life that had just happened right before our annual meeting this summer. 
And he talked about how he got a phone call from this pastor that they go way back. This pastor, we'll call him Pastor Larry. And Pastor Larry was calling because of the annual meeting was coming up and we were going to be discussing our statement on human sexuality. And he really disagreed with, with where the covenant has discerned our position looking at the scriptures. And so for an hour, for an hour, Pastor Larry was very zealous on the phone. And as the phone call was wrapping up, the conversation was wrapping up, Pastor Larry says to Pastor Dick, he says, this is going to be a hard meeting, isn't it? This annual meeting, it's going to be hard, isn't it? And, and Dick Luco said, yeah, it's going to be hard. And he said, but at least my wife will be there, and my wife can be my bodyguard. And Pastor Larry said, you know what? If your wife can't be there as your bodyguard, I'll serve in that role. After disagreeing passionately for an hour, he said, I got your back, brother. Isn't that what we're working for as a church? Isn't that a God-honoring response? All right, let's pray to that end as the worship band comes up and closes us with this song that seeks this. Father, there are so many great examples out there. Even as we just painted this broad picture of how in general we can be as religious people, Father, there's also these beautiful examples of, your, of, of people like Dick Luco and this other guy who disagreed so much. And yet, at the end of the day, they were able to, to say, it's not that we hate one another, but we're trying to figure all this out. Father, may this be a community that really tries hard to figure things out, but does so in love for one another. Father, make us one. Make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.